Okay, I think we'll go ahead and get rolling. We may have some people come in here in the next couple minutes, but they can just jump in when they get here. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for being patient and loving, kind, gracious. Thank you that you are right and that you are good, that you're trustworthy and reliable. We thank you for who you are and we thank you for what you've done in the world. We thank you for the grand story of salvation that you've been uncovering since the beginning of time. We thank you that you've revealed it to us in your word. And we pray again for your help this afternoon as we think about your word. We think about how to try to read it and understand it and apply it to our lives. We do pray for your help. We pray that you would help us to think clearly and correctly. And we pray also that you would help us by your spirit to understand and to be transformed by and apply your word as you speak to us. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, as we've done the past, uh, as we did last time, before we jump in, I want to do a little bit of review of some of the things that we talked about last week. So, if you remember, there were a few big things that we talked about last week that kind of added on to some of the things we talked about the first week. The, the three big things that I want to review, I guess there's four, the four big things I want to review are genre, literary context, historical cultural context, and then last week we talked about a few clues to meaning to look at while you are assessing a passage. So let's review those things. Let's start with genre. Anybody want to tell us what genre is? How would you define genre? A category, okay. A category of something specific being literature. literature, okay. So, right, genre is a different category, different kind of literature, a different form of literature. We find lots of different genre of literature in our contemporary world, in the library. You could find many different genres. Scripture also has a set of genre. There are a part of uh, the, the writings that God has given us. What are some of the genre that we find in Scripture? Let's throw one out there. Yep, history. Poetry, letter, prophecy, good. Gospels. Parable, yep. Wisdom, narrative, good. Yep, law, apocalyptic writing. I think we pretty much covered all of them. So here's the question. Why is it important to know genre? There's different ways of interpreting different genre, right, exactly. Good, so that's genre, we talked about that uh, last week. We're gonna cover two more biblical genre today during the class, so we'll continue to unpack genre. Second thing that we talked about last week, we'll talk about again, that's also really important to interpreting scripture is literary context. So we talked about two different kind of contexts last week, literary, con literary context and historical cultural context. What is the literary context? Right, yeah, right. The immediate context would be the sentences, paragraphs, even discourses that come before the text you're looking at and after the text you're looking at. That would be your literary context. And then more broadly, genre, understanding genre is part of understanding your literary context as well. So good, that's literary context. What about historical cultural context? What is that? Luke? Mm-hmm, yep. So who's the author? Who were they writing to? What was the reason they were writing? What was the specific situation in which this was written? What are some of the geographical factors, the, the um, political factors, religious factors that were in play when this original uh, document was written? That's historical cultural context. And then last week, as we were getting ready to look at the parable, I reminded you, 
As you look through the parable, look for a few things that are important that might be helpful for you in identifying what the main point is. Who remembers what those three things were that we talked about? Repetition, good. Comparison and contrast. Commands, good. So those are three things we talked about last week. Those are good things to look for anytime you're reading the Bible. Any passage, if you see a word repeated over and over, you see drawing comparison, contrast, you see commands, those are things that, are, that you want to look at that will help you get to this is what this passage is really all about. So good job. You remembered from last week. That's encouraging. So this afternoon, we're going to look at two more biblical genre. We're going to talk about Old Testament narrative and Old Testament law, and I'm going to give you some principles for interpreting those two different genres. So we're going to start by talking about Old Testament narrative, and we're going to walk through the principles. We're not going to walk through an Old Testament narrative passage uh, because we don't have time to do both, but I'll give you the opportunity to do that during the week if you would like to. And then we're going to talk about Old Testament law, principles for interpreting Old Testament law, and then we're actually going to work through a passage from Leviticus to get together. So let's start by talking about Old Testament narrative. <clears throat> let's talk about the genre. What is Old Testament narrative? Well, nearly half of the Old Testament is classified as narrative. So we find large portions of narrative writing in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Jonah, Haggai. You can see them up there. Right, large portions of all of those books would be classified as Old Testament narrative. Now, most of us are pretty familiar with narrative, if, even if we couldn't articulate with technical terms what a narrative is. A narrative is a literary form that utilizes sequential time and action to develop a plot, setting, and character. So, in a narrative... Meaning is deprived primarily from the actions of the characters. So it's different from like the New Testament letters or epistles where the author is going to tell you directly, this is what I'm trying to communicate. This is what I mean. Narrative, you have to read a little bit differently because often the author is not going to come out and tell you directly what you're supposed to learn. You're going to have to pay attention to what's happening in the story, how the characters and plot and conflict is developing because the author of narrative is not going to so much tell you right and wrong, tell you what you're supposed to learn. They're going to show you right and wrong. They're going to show you what they want to learn, you to learn by the way that they're developing the narrative. So as we talk about Old Testament narrative, we're going to see kind of the same two dynamics at work that we saw at work in the Gospels. Remember, I said the Gospels are history. Right, the authors are telling us of real things that happen in space and time. <clears throat> in the same way, Old Testament, the Old Testament narrative is history. It's, re it's recording historical events. But also, like the Gospels, it's more than history. Because the, the Gospel writers, they were telling us history, but they had a theological purpose. In the same way, the writers of the Old Testament narrative are telling us history, but they're doing it with a theological purpose. So we might call the Old Testament narrative a theological history. So in some ways, it's similar to the genre of the New Testament Gospels and the book of Acts. So that's high-level overview of the genre of Old Testament narrative. Now let's start by talking about some principles to keep in mind as you interpret passages that fall within this genre. <clears throat> the first principle that I want to give you is to understand the meta-narrative of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is one grand continuous story of God's redemption of mankind. It's one meta-narrative that's made up of many smaller stories or micro-narratives of how God is working within the lives of specific people or specific groups of people. So, in, under, in order to understand the meta-narrative of the Old Testament, we have to rightly understand the micro-narratives, and I would say that in order to rightly understand the micro-narratives, we also need to understand the meta-narrative, what God is doing on a bigger scale. If you want to learn more about the meta-narrative, I'm just going to run through it real quickly, but <clears throat> this book 
Uh, this is an old book, From Creation to the Cross. You may not even be able to find this book. Uh, I think you can find it, but it's not new. But this has been an incredibly helpful book for me to understand the meta-narrative of Scripture, how everything was working from creation to the cross as God was bringing his plan of salvation to be. This is another helpful book for just understanding the Old Testament in general. It's called The Story of the Old Testament by David Talley. It's a good kind of reference book, a handbook, just to have on hand uh, that gives you kind of the themes and background of the key books and how they fit into the bigger picture. So if I was just going to recommend a couple of resources to you, those are ones that might be helpful. They're going to go into a lot more detail than we're going to this afternoon. What I do this afternoon, just want to walk through some of the, what I would say are the key points in the meta-narrative of the Old Testament. The first would be Genesis 1 and 3. So in Genesis 1 and 2, you all are probably familiar, we see God's original intent for the design of the universe. We see his desire to create a beautiful place called earth, to create a beautiful relationship with his creation and especially with mankind who are the image bearers and to give mankind a beautiful purpose in filling the earth and subduing it as his servants and under stewards. And then in Genesis 3, we see the unraveling of these three beautiful things uh, with the temptation that's brought on by the serpent and the rebellion of mankind against the command and order of God. And then we see God's subsequent curse upon mankind and his creation. So what that means is, if I'm reading Old Testament narrative, and I'm trying to understand my micro-narratives in, in the bigger picture of the meta-narrative, that means any time after Genesis 3 that I read about something evil happening, or I see sin happening, I see people walking away from God and destructiveness following in their path, I'm thinking back to Genesis 3. This is how this fits in with the meta-narrative. But the other thing that I would say is, it isn't just sin and evil and death and the curse that we see in Genesis 3. We also have a promise. Because even as things in God's world quickly unravel in Genesis 3, God whispers a promise of redemption in Genesis 3.15. He promises to send a serpent crusher, right? A son from the line of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. So even by the end of Genesis 3, the conflict of our meta-narrative has been set, right? The serpent has caught mankind in sin and rebellion and cursedness, but God promises that he's gonna bring redemption and victory through a child of Eve. And what follows after Genesis 3 is the story of how God is gonna work through human affairs to bring about this plan, but how Satan will constantly but unsuccessfully try to usurp God's plan. So this is the, the, the first big key, I think, in understanding the meta-narrative of the Old Testament. It's the, the framework by which we then understand the story of Noah. We understand the story of the Great Flood. We understand the story of the Tower of Babel. <clears throat> so that's the first key, Genesis 1 through 3. The second, Genesis 12, 1 through 7. In Genesis 12, 1 through 7, God calls Abram out of the land of Ur and makes a series of promises to him. And we're to look back, right? When we get to Genesis 12 and we start reading this, we are to look back and see these promises that God is making Abram as a crucial step in what he is promised to do in Genesis 3. So the action and the plot line of the meta-narrative are developing. They're moving forward. We see them take a step in Genesis 12. And these promises that God is gonna make to Abraham are gonna be an important interpretive framework for how we understand the micro-narratives that are gonna follow. So just listen to the promises that God gives Abram in Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And to your offspring, I will give this land. And what's just as important as remembering these promises that God makes to Abram is remembering how he made these promises to Abram. And that's what we see in Genesis 15. <clears throat> in Genesis 15, you're probably, again, familiar with this. That's where we see this 
fascinating ceremony where Abram divides these animals, right? And he's ready to make this covenant with God and then God puts him to sleep. And the, the smoking torch and the flaming, pyre, fl- flaming fire pot pass through the animals while Abram sleeps. So I said it's just as important to know how the covenant is made as to as it is what the covenant promises were. And here's why. Here's what this ceremony means. It means that God himself assumes full responsibility and full liability for keeping these covenant promises that he's just made to Abram. So what it's important to remember about this covenant that God makes to Abram is that it's a unilateral covenant. So God is going to keep these promises independently of Abraham's action. So as we continue on from Genesis 15, we're going to be looking at all the ways that God is going to be faithful to keep these promises, even though Abram and his descendants are not. So this really becomes the driving force of everything that follows, God's faithfulness. So God is clearly going to be the hero of this story. Now here's one of the other thing, interesting things you find in Genesis 15. You see God make these promises that he's going to unilaterally keep to Abram, but then you see that it's not going to be promised it's not going to be fulfilled immediately. This, in, this is what he says to Abram in Genesis 15, 13 through 14. <clears throat> he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Right. So even in Genesis 15, we, we should be thinking... God has made these promises, he's going to keep them, but Israel's going to suffer first, right? And what we know, because we know the Bible, is that they're going to Egypt, right? And so what we read from Genesis 15 to the beginning of Exodus, we're reading it through the context of Genesis 15, verse 13 through 14. God is going to keep his promises, but he has said that his people are going to go to a foreign land and they're going to be slaves first. So... That's the story that's unfolding in the rest of Genesis. So these first three uh, key points of the meta narrative are to shape our interpretive framework for how we understand everything from Genesis 16 through Exodus 19. Right? This is the framework that helps us understand and interpret the life of Abraham, the life of Jacob and Esau, of Joseph, slavery and affliction of the Hebrews in Egypt. It's even... I think this is fascinating. We taught through the Exodus in Challenge last year. It's even the the framework by which we understand God's curses against Egypt. Right? What did God promise Abraham? I will curse those who dishonor you. So Pharaoh, when he dishonors the Israelites, he's setting himself against the promise that God has already made. Right? God is just doing what he said he did he would do and Pharaoh has set himself against him. So the next key point in the meta narrative is Exodus 19, 1 through 9. So God has brought Abram's descendants out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness, and God forms another covenant with them. This is the, the second big covenant. This is the third. He makes a covenant with Noah, but I didn't put that in here. It's the third big covenant that God makes. <clears throat> with the people of Israel here. And it's a little, little bit different from the covenant that he makes with Abraham. Because whereas God's covenant with Abraham had been personal in nature, this covenant is corporate in nature. So God's not making a covenant with a person, he's making a covenant with a group of people here, with all the people of Israel. And whereas God's covenant with Abraham had been unilateral, his covenant with Israel here is bilateral. What, the, what I be my... What I mean by that is that it requires both covenant parties to take specific actions to meet the conditions and requirements of the covenant. So it's important too, as we see this new covenant forming, to understand how these covenants are going to work together. This covenant that God's making with Israel at Sinai, it's called the Sinaitic Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, it doesn't replace or annul God's previous covenant with Abraham. So this Sinaitic covenant is going to act like a covenant within a covenant. God's unilateral promises to Abraham remain intact. 
They remain operable. But now, in addition to those promises that God has made to Abraham that he will keep, he's going to relate with Abraham's descendants through this conditional covenant. So the conditions of the Sinaitic covenant are added to our framework of understanding this meta-narrative. So here's the, the Sinaitic covenant in brief. Here's God's promise to Israel in Exodus 19. He says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you hear the condition there? If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession and a kingdom of priests. So you can just mentally add that to your list of uh, clues to meaning, conditional statements. As you're reading through any passage of scripture, if you find conditional statements, conditional promises like that, that's going to be important to make note of. So, the condition's clear. I put Deuteronomy 28 up there because that's another really helpful one. If you just want like the, the, the reality of the conditional nature of this covenant that God makes with Israel, in short, just look at Deuteronomy 28. The first half of Deuteronomy 28 says, if you will obey me, all these blessings are gonna happen. And then about halfway it shifts and says, but if you don't, all these curses are coming. Right, that's a really important framework for understanding how God is going to relate to Israel through the rest of the Old Testament. Fifth one I have up there, the last one, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. That's the, the place where God makes a covenant with David to raise up a member of David's offspring and establish his throne and his kingdom forever. So God's covenant with David is also a personal covenant He's making a a covenant with David specifically to raise up one of his offspring, and it's a unilateral covenant, right? God is going to keep this promise without David, uh, regardless of what David does. There's no condition to it. God is going to do it. And again, understanding how all these covenants work together is important. This covenant that God makes with David doesn't annul either of the previous covenants, It doesn't annul the covenant with Abram, and it doesn't annul the covenant that he's made with Israel at Sinai. So from this point on, 2 Samuel 7 to the New Testament, we have these three covenants that are all happening, working, playing out simultaneously. Which, what that means for us then, if we think about how is God going to keep his promises? What's it going to look like for God to keep his promises after we, we know about these three covenants? This is what it means. What it's going to take to see the Davidic covenant come to fruition is a king from the line of David. God has promised David that. And the seed of Abram, because he's promised Abram that, who fulfills the Sinaitic conditions of God's covenant with Israel and makes Israel a blessing to all families of the earth, right? This, this Messiah that's coming has to meet all these criteria because God has promised that's going to be so. And those, that framework is what forms the Jewish messianic hope that was in place when Jesus shows up on the scene, right? The Jews knew these are the covenants that God has made with us. He's going to answer these promises all together and the person who is coming to fulfill these promises is going to have to meet all these criteria right they had that information still weren't quite looking for the right guy but that's another point so here's practically why all of this is important because in order to truly understand the the micro narratives of the old testament we must rightly understand the meta narrative right if we don't consider the meta-narrative, then what happens is you end up with stories like the stories I heard in Sunday school a lot when I was a little kid, if I'm being honest. Stories about Noah that becomes a story about resisting the voice of culture, right? Or a story about Joseph that becomes just a story about having integrity. Or the story of David just becomes a story about having courage, right? Those are, those are very... Uh, humanistic elements we can draw from that of how we should live as people of God but if that's all we see in those stories we're missing the meta-narrative 
Because that's really not what those stories are about. Those are stories about how God is moving his meta-narrative forward through people. And yes, there's things we can learn about how to relate to God from those people, but that's never the main point. The main point of the story is God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promised plan of redemption. And if we lose sight of the meta-narrative, it's going to be easy for us to lose sight of what the micro-narrative means. So, anytime you're reading the Old Testament narrative, one big principle for interpreting whatever passage you're looking at is to step back and to remember these, three, these, these points up here, key points of the meta-narrative, and ask yourself, how does this micro-narrative fit into the meta-narrative? What has already come? What are the big points that have already happened? What are the points that have not yet happened? And how is this micro-narrative part of moving God's plan of redemption forward? Now, we've talked a lot about the meta-narrative, how important the, important the meta-narrative is. I will say that there's, there is a danger in a purely narrative theology. Right? Some people are, are really big into narrative theology right now at the cost of systematic theology. And there's this temptation to either intentionally or unintentionally overlook or misinterpret micro-narratives because they don't fit well with your meta-narrative. So for example, if, if the meta-narrative that I really want to see in Scripture is God's kind and loving plan to redeem the nations, and then I come to the book of Joshua, where God commands Israel to utterly destroy the pagan nations who are living in the promised land, then I have a couple of, of options. Either I need to adjust my meta-narrative a little bit so that it takes into consideration the micro-narratives of the Old Testament, or my temptation is going to be to kind of overlook these micro-narratives that don't fit with my meta-narrative. We have to remember that the Bible is a single, unified whole. So the meta-narrative is going to affirm the meaning of the micro-narratives, and the micro-narratives are going to affirm the meaning of the meta-narrative. Okay, so that's the first big principle, is keep in mind the meta-narrative. Now let's talk about the micro-narrative, or the, the specific passages that you might be looking at while you read through the Old Testament narrative. Here are some principles <clears throat> for understanding the micro-narrative. The first is play, pay attention to the plot. So the plot is the organizing structure that ties the narrative together. Most narratives have three parts. An exposition, which is just the introduction. It's a fancy word for introduction. Introducing the main characters, the plot, the setting. The second big piece is the conflict. An internal or external struggle that's characterized by incompleteness, disorder, or unfulfilled desire. And then the third is the resolution. How the conflict is resolved. So the plot moves the story forward and ties the individual episodes into one larger story. So exploring the plot answers the questions what and how. What is happening here and how is it, ha how is it happening? Second part of your, your micro-narrative to pay attention to is the setting. And the two key components of setting are time and place. So answering questions about setting are going to answer questions like when did this happen, and where did it happen? And I will say, specifically, as you're reading through the Old Testament narrative, one of the places that you'll want to pay close attention to is the promised land, right? How is someone positioning themselves with regard to the promised land, right? When they send out the 12 spies and they come back with a report, right? They make a decision about how to position themselves to the promised land, and God responds to them based on the decision that they make, right? So, so pay specific attention to the promised land as you think about setting. The third would be characters. <clears throat> the meaning uh, being communicated through a narrative is often revealed through the behavior of one or more of the characters. So when you explore the characters in your micro-narrative, you're answering the question, who? Who is involved here? And one warning, as you think about the characters in your Old Testament stories, is to remember that characters are complex, 
right? Rarely are you going to find an Old Testament character that is purely good or purely bad. Sometimes they're, they're clearly bad. A few of them are, are mostly good, but most of them are, are just a mixed bag of good and bad. So don't let your perception of whether a person was a good guy or a bad guy influence your interpretation of the passage. Duvall and Hayes say, one of the most common errors made in interpreting Old Testament narrative is to assume that everyone in the story is a hero or a model for us to copy. This is simply not true. Many of the people are negative characters and we need to be aware of this. And I would just say here as we're talking about characters to remember that God is the hero. God is the main character of the Old Testament. So any passage you're reading through, you need to be asking, where is God? What is he up to? What is he doing? How does this story relate to him? What can we learn about him? And we need to let God be who he is. We have to be cautious not to too quickly or too simplistically force God into our neat little theological boxes because you will find some stuff in the Old Testament that isn't neat. (laughs) And so don't just too quickly try to force God into a box that you've created. It's good to wrestle with those things. All right, so we've talked about plot setting characters. Now let's talk about the viewpoint of the narrator. So the narrator is the person responsible for conveying the meaning or the narrative to the reader. And occasionally, the narrator will tell us explicitly how to interpret a narrative or what he was intending to communicate. So he may, you'll see this as as you read through the Old Testament places or as you read through the Gospels, we'll, we'll get a story and then the narrator, Jesus isn't speaking, no one's really speaking, but the narrator will put in a line that tells you this is what was happening. This is what you should understand. Sometimes that will happen, but often the narrator is just expecting us to put on our thinking caps as we survey the story and ask the question, what am I supposed to learn from this? Fifth, comparison contrast. We've talked about this at length, but often you will see characters set in contrast. Uh, That's on purpose. So just continue to pay attention to comparison and contrast, even in narrative. The sixth is irony. Irony is a literary term that's used to describe situations where literal or surface meaning of an event is quite different, even opposite to the narrator's real or intended meaning. And often irony is used to make a point in the Old Testament. So just pay attention to ironic places in the narrative. And then lastly, I would say uh, be sure as you're reading through the Old Testament narrative to differentiate between what you're seeing described, and what is being prescribed. So some events that we read of in the scriptures describe historical events that took place among God's people, but they were never intended to be a prescription for God's people. In fact, sometimes we read about events in the Old Testament narrative that are directly opposed to God's clear prescription that he's given his people. So you take, for example, the, just say the golden calf incident. you find in Exodus. That's a description of something that happened that was directly opposed to God's prescription. So as you read through the Old Testament, you need to ask the question, is what I'm reading here, is this something that God has prescribed or is the narrator just describing to us what is happening? So those are some some big picture things to keep in mind as you're reading through your micro-narratives within the Old Testament Now let me give you some genre-specific questions to ask in their town. So you've read through your passage, you're in their town, you're trying to grasp the meaning of the text. Here's some specific questions you might ask. The first, we've already talked about it, where does this passage fall in the overarching meta-narrative of the Old Testament? What covenants were operative at this time in Israel's history? And how, do the, how does this story relate to those operative covenants? Then you have your just basic journalism questions. Who, what, when, where, how? Another good question to ask is, what is the narrator showing us about how we should live or not live in relation to God and one another? And then lastly, 
like we just mentioned, what is prescribed here and what is just being described? Those are some important questions you can ask. And lastly, I will just say, as you think about reading the Old Testament narrative, anytime you start moving toward identifying the meaning or identifying the principle of the passage, make sure you deal with covenant. Okay, because if you're reading anything in the Old Testament, realize that, uh, especially if you're reading it after Exodus 19, there's a very different covenant at work in the way that God was relating to his people. Make sure that you're differentiating between the way that God related to his people in that covenant and the way that God relates to his people in our current covenant, the new covenant in Christ. And we're going to have a chance to practice working through that in our passage in just a minute. So, Any questions about Old Testament narrative? Okay. So like I said, we're not going to practice an Old Testament narrative passage, but I do have one. I put one together for you. It's the story of Jephthah in Judges. So it would be a good one to work through. So if you want to work through that passage, I'll send it out in the email that I send out tomorrow or Tuesday, the kind of one-sheet assignment. And if you want to do some extra work, you can do that. But let's press on and talk about Old Testament law. So the passage that we're going to look through this afternoon, you have it there before you, is Leviticus 11, 1 through 8. It's a portion of scripture that is located within the genre of Old Testament law. So before we just jump into the interpretive journey, let me give you some principles for interpreting Old Testament law. So the Old Testament contains over 600 legal commands or prohibitions that God gave to the nation of Israel. Most of them are found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, along with some in Exodus, especially the last half of Exodus and a portion of Numbers. And how we as Christians relate to these Old Testament laws uh, can be confusing. And one of the prominent traditional methodologies for interpreting the Old Testament law was to categorize these 600 laws into moral laws ceremonial laws, and civil laws. And in this idea, moral laws were those that communicated timeless truths about God's intention for human morality. They were laws about things like murder or adultery, loving your neighbor. Those would often be put in this category. And then you had civil laws that were those that governed Israel as a part of its national legal code. So these would be laws about things like economic fairness, handling of property, civil crimes. And then you had this third class that was ceremonial laws, which were those laws that dealt specifically with the religious practices of ancient Israel, involved things like animal sacrifices, the observance of festivals, and priestly activities. And so if if you're using this interpretive framework for understanding the law, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, the Christians, to, the, what, if you're using this interpretive me- method, what you would do is you would say that Christians are bound to moral laws. So those are timeless laws that are for all people of all of time, but they're not bound to civil or ceremonial laws because those were specific to a group of people at a certain time and place in a certain covenant. Now, I, there are lots of people who think that this is a good way to interpret the law. I don't think it's the best way, personally. Uh, And if you've read through the textbook, Duval and Hayes would agree. I think that the methodology actually has a pretty weak foundation in trying to differentiate among the laws what's moral, what's ceremonial, what's civil. So if you read through sections of the Old Testament law, you'll quickly discover that there is no distinction as they're riding along in Leviticus. It doesn't say, here are your moral laws, here are your ceremonial laws, here are your civil laws. In fact, you often find that moral laws, or what we would consider to be moral laws, most people would, are right next to ceremonial laws. And the author shows little to no interest in attempting to distinguish the two. Great example, Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, 
but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Sounds like a moral law. Then you have Leviticus 19. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Right? So most of us would say, we should love our neighbor as ourself, but man, I love my jeans that have 2% spandex. (laughs) They're really comfortable. Right? But the Old Testament narrator, he's not... He's not differentiating those between those two. They're all there together. So let me introduce you to a different framework from, for inter, interpreting the Old Testament law. Uh, there's an image here. It's called the lens of Christ. This comes from Jason Derushi. He's the professor of Old Testament at Midwestern. He wrote a book called How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament. And he uses this framework as opposed to using a moral, ceremonial, civil framework. So what he would say and what Duval and Hayes would get to is saying that we have to take each Old Testament commandment or prohibition and individually consider how Jesus or the New Testament either transforms, maintains, extends, or annuls that commandment. And this tool that we have hinges on our fr- the framework we have for understanding how the Old and New Covenant relate to one another. And the consistent message of the New Testament is that the covenant of Jesus' blood has fulfilled the Sinaitic covenant. It's transformed the way followers of Jesus are to understand the law. And Jesus discusses that in detail in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it can be debated about what exactly that means that Jesus fulfilled the Sinaitic covenant, how that affects our relationship to it. But most often in the New Testament, to fulfill is to meet or supply the conditions or expectations of a previously given Promise. So Jesus met and supplied the conditions and expect, expectations of the law. And since he fulfilled them, we don't have to. Now, that doesn't mean that the Old Testament law is completely useful for us as Christians. It simply means that the Old Testament's real and abiding authority for us must be understood through the lens of Jesus and his kingdom. We must run the Old Testament law through the lens of Christ and consider whether this teaching that we're reading about in the law it is transformed, maintained, extended, or annulled by Jesus and, the new, and his kingdom. So, that would be my first principle for, for interpreting the law, is to keep the lens of Christ in mind and run the principles you're reading about, the laws you're reading about through the lens of Christ to see where they end up in the New Testament and in the New Covenant. The second big thing I would say to keep in mind as you read through the law is to keep the why of the law in mind. Remember God's stated purpose in establishing the covenant with Israel, right? His stated purpose in this covenant that he made with Israel was this, to make Israel into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation who would manifest his glory to the surrounding nations and to the world. And necessary to doing this was being like him, namely being holy. And this is at the heart of God's law, right? God gave Israel the law so that they would be a holy people who would reflect his holiness in the world. And in order for Israel to be priestly mediators of God's glory and holiness to the nations, they had to be set apart from those nations. They had to be holy. So as we read through the Old Testament law, it's, it's important to keep the big why in mind. Why was God giving this law to Israel? Simply put, he was giving it to them because he wanted them to be holy like he was holy so they could carry out the purpose that he had for them, which was to be a mediator and priest to the rest of the world. So those are my two big principles for you as you think about reading and interpreting the Old Testament law. And now we're going to practice. So does everybody have a handout? Sherry? Okay, so we're going to do, interpret together Leviticus 11, 1 through 8. Before we jump in, 
let's just remember the interpretive journey. We're starting in step one, right? Step one is grasping the text in their town. And the goal of step one, you'll remember, is to identify what did the text mean to the biblical audience. So you have some questions up there that are going to be important for you. As you think about this, what is the genre of the passage? We've talked about that. What are some guiding principles for this genre? We've talked about that. <clears throat> Where does this passage fit within the large overarching story of the Bible or the meta narrative, so to say? We've talked about that. And so now we're ready to read and observe the text carefully. Now, let me, before we jump in and read, let me give you just a little bit of context. This is from... I told you I like these NIV application commentaries. Here's the one on Leviticus. Look at that bad boy. A lot there. So this is Roy Gain. He's the one who wrote this commentary on Leviticus. Here is what he says. This is his summary on the author, audience, situation, and themes of Leviticus. He says, God, through Moses, addressed a neonatal nation of freshly liberated slaves in the Sinai Desert sometime during the latter half of the second millennium BC. In this light, the initial purpose of the book was to establish and maintain enduring patterns of divine human and human-human interaction that are appropriate and necessary for a holy tribal community centered in the divine presence. It is about God's call to a life of holiness in relation to himself and other members of the community of faith. So there's your big picture overview, what the book of Leviticus is about. And now I want to give you some time to read through the passage. You have it there in front of you. I want you to read through the passage carefully. Remember, you're, you're putting on your detective hat here. We're not trying to interpret. We're not trying to apply. We're just trying to ask the question, what would this have meant to the original audience? So I'm going to give you some time. You can read through the passage. Remember, look for your clues to meaning. And then I want you to, to try to synthesize what's this passage about. And then we'll talk about it here in a minute. All right. So let's talk about it. <clears throat> I want you to imagine you're living in the days of the Exodus and you're telling your Jewish, Jewish buddy what God has said, right? So that's the, the way I want you to, to phrase this. How would you synthesize this down into a few sentences that you, you would tell your, your Jewish buddy, this is what God said? Yep, so he told him don't eat or touch certain things so that you'll be pure and holy. Okay, good. Anybody else? Thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if I was going to boil it down, what would I say? Right? It's right there. God said, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, we can eat. But if it's only one or the other, we can't eat it. <laughs> it's got to be both, right? So anything that those two things... We can eat of the animals of the earth. It's not that. We can't eat it. So, my next question is, what, what questions do you still have? Do you think about? The, Matt, what question do you have? Why? That's a good question. Why, why, what has a cloven foot and choose the cut and not some other factors? Right? Why are those things that God focused on? Yep. Um, what parts the hoof so, so some animals would have like a solid hoof and some would have like a parted hoof like a pig and then I think cloven foot would be animals that have more than more than a cloven foot so they may have three like a badger right isn't that the rock badger yeah I don't know you, you should do some research and come back next week and tell us. <laughs> okay. Any other questions? Or like, I, th I think we need some more info on this. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, why, why, these, why does this matter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, those are both great questions. Those are both questions I had. Why these specific animals? Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's possible. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. Okay. So let me give you a little bit of a little bit more context. So I was curious why would God prohibit these animals and not other ones? So I, I dug into the, the commentary a little bit and let me let me tell you what Roy Gain says. He says it is disturbing to interpreters that Leviticus 11 does not provide an explicit rationale for the division of animals into clean and unclean categories. For the Israelites, this was not an issue because the main point was to do what the Lord said, whether or not he offered an explanation. Aside from showing that the Lord is concerned with details of everyday human life, such as diet, Leviticus 11 reminds us that he does not always provide detailed explanations for what he commands. So, if you read in the, the commentary, he gives, well, here's theories. Here's theories about why these animals and not other animals, but they're theories, right? God didn't come out and say, this is why these animals and not others. He just said, don't eat these. So there might be something in there that's a part of how we're going to build the bridge to our town, right? There might be something there for us to think about when we get to our town. Okay, that's some historical cultural context Let's talk about some literary context. Here's what Gaines says about all of Leviticus 11 together. So if you keep looking through Leviticus 11, you see there are a lot more animals. These are just the animals of the earth. The list goes on and on. Here's what Gaines says. Leviticus 11 places species belonging to the domains of land, sea, and air in the three categories, pure, impure, and abomination, by criteria and or list as follows. Land animals... Sea creatures, birds, winged insects, impure carcasses that convey uncleanness by touch, and land swarmers. And maybe the most important thing, more important than recognizing these categories, is to see what, what it says at the very end, Leviticus 11.45. You have this long list of unclean foods that should not be eaten, and then God says, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So that's the reason, right? That's the best reason we get. Be holy because I'm holy, and I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. So I want you now to, as we finish step one, try to synthesize the original meaning of this passage into one or two sentences. Okay, we've talked about it some, but I want you to use your own words, synthesize this into one or two sentences about what God said. Okay, anybody want to read us their synthesis? One or two sentences. Sadie? Yeah, great. It's very good. Anybody else have anything different? Yeah, I think you pretty well covered it, Sadie. It's good. Here's what I put down. The Israelites could eat any land animal that both chewed cud and had a divided hoof, but they disobeyed God and became ceremonially unclean if they ate an animal that did not fit these criteria or if they even touched the carcass of such an animal. These dietary restrictions preserved Israel's covenant faithfulness and made them a holy reflection of their holy God to the surrounding nations. So there's kind of a, a two-sentence synthesis of what this passage meant in their town. And now we're going to move on to step two of the interpretive journey, which is measuring the width of the river of differences. What are the differences between the biblical audience and us? Remember, we're, we're going big picture here. What, are, what do you think are some of the important differences to keep in mind as we move toward building our principalizing bridge? 
Covenant, yep. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah. That's the biggest one, right? Covenant. That's going to be a big one for us to think through. Differences? Any other differences? I mean, the, the, the easy ones are being set apart. So she's talking about a similarity, right? We have differences, different covenant, but same idea in the new covenant. We're God's people and we're to be holy as he is holy, so, so this isn't completely different. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. That's a part of the new covenant, right? There's, we know some. We know how this is playing out in the new covenant. We know how that's going to happen. So it's going to be important for us to specifically think about how is the old covenant different from the new covenant. Okay. So, so really, the goal of this step is just get your mind turning. So you're thinking through similarities and differences as you start to build your principalizing bridge. So let's go to that. So that's step three, crossing the principalizing bridge. The goal is what is the theological principle in this text? Now here are the factors to keep in mind as you come up with your theological, theological principle. It should be reflected in the text, right? So it should be about what Leviticus 11 is about should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. So, if they had one covenant, they were under one covenant, we're under a different covenant, in order for our principle to be timeless and not tied to that situation, we're going to have to do some adjusting, right? Our principle is going to need to fit their covenant and our covenant. And what that means is that it's going to have to get broader, okay? So often when you're moving from old covenant, especially law, to a, and trying to connect in our town under a different covenant, your principle, you're going to have to take your meaning. Your meaning as you move to principle is going to have to get broader because it's got to connect on both sides of the river of differences. Should not be culturally bound. Should correspond to the te- teaching of the rest of Scripture. So Christie's, Christie brought up um, Peter's vision in Acts 15, the sheet that comes down, right? We're starting to think about those things. What is the rest of Scripture saying about this? How is the new covenant starting to speak to this passage that we're reading about in Leviticus 11? So, um, and it should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. We talked about that. So, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think about what your theological principle would be so it needs to be something that if you said to the Jewish people who are reading Leviticus 11 they would have said yep that's what this is about and it would be something that if you said it to a new covenant Christian they would say yep that's true applies to both of us okay that should be your principle so think about a principle it's going to be broader more general than your meaning, but it's there. So give it some time, think through it, write it down. And I would say don't get to application yet. We're going to do application later, right? This is just the principle. Okay, anybody want to take a stab at it? Matt? Good. To be, he said, to be holy as God is holy, people, God's people must obey his commands. Okay. So let me show you, if you've been in the textbook, let me show you an image in the textbook that Duvall and Hayes used to show how they get from, how they're building a principalizing bridge from this passage specifically to the new covenant. So you see on the bottom left is the specific teaching of Leviticus 11 about eating certain foods. And then they're starting to think through New Testament. That's on the right side. What is in the new covenant of Jesus' blood? What is a similar teaching? How does this play out in application? 
and you see the, the New, Te New Testament context specific on the bottom right, but in order for their principle to bridge both sides, it can't, it's got to be general enough that it speaks to both our town and their town. So what that arc shows you there is their process of moving from Leviticus 11 specific up to something that's more general that can be a principle between both covenants and then they're going to come what they're doing when they come down the right side is they're starting to move toward application which is where we're going to go next so Duval and Hayes would say that their principle for Leviticus 11 is God is holy and he wants his people to be holy does that make sense okay so now let's move to step four. Step four is consulting the biblical map, asking the question, how does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? So this is where, again, we're remembering all of Scripture comes from God who is a single, unified, logical being. So Scripture is going to interpret itself. So this is where we start thinking, what does the rest of Scripture have to say about this passage? And specifically, what are the New Testament passages that we know that are going to help us think about application and the connection between cleanness and uncleanness, holiness, those types of things. So here you're thinking about some other passages that affirm our principle, and you may think of some that... Um, qualify our principle so think through if you know of any passages Christy threw one out there already see if you can think of any other ones that would help us think through this idea of eating certain animals to be clean avoiding certain animals to be unclean how does Jesus redefine cleanness and uncleanness you think of passages in the Gospels where he speaks about that. Mm. Yep. So Jesus is starting to get at the Pharisees were paying attention to keeping things clean externally, but inside they were unclean. And he seemed to be more concerned with that. Luke? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter my kingdom. So that tells us he's looking for something a little different than what the Pharisees are after. Yeah, I think that's all good. Um, Acts 19 is Peter's dream where the sheet comes down full of these unclean animals. God says, Peter, rise and eat. Peter's like, I don't think so, Lord. Never done that before. <laughs> and he says, what God is calling clean, don't you call it unclean. And then Mark 7, Luke mentioned it. Mark 7 is a pretty clear one. This is Jesus calling to the people and saying, hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and ex is expelled? And here's one of those narrator notes, right? Jesus didn't say this. Mark's adding a, a narrative note for us to clarify, just in case you missed it. Here's what Jesus meant. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And so that's pretty clear teaching from Jesus about clean and unclean foods and what he's after, a cleanness of the heart. So if we go back to the lens of Christ, how would you describe, I guess it's up there, so maybe that's not hard, but 
what would Jason DeRucci say, I guess, about the laws regarding clean and unclean food, how they pass through the lens of Christ? You can see there it says annulled, right, that all foods are clean. We are no longer bound by dietary restrictions, the ones we find in Leviticus. Okay, so now I want to move toward, oh, one other one I want to throw up there. This one's really interesting. Here's Peter, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he has called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter's quoting Leviticus, applying it to New Testament Christians, right? Saying, you are to be holy as God is holy. So, we know it remains. The principle is there, right? We must be holy as God is holy, But we now know the application is not eat these foods and not these foods. There's a different application of us. So step five is application. What is the application then for new covenant Christians, for us? We are to be holy as God is holy. What does that mean? It's not about eating food. What's it about? Yeah. Yeah, so it's both. It's the heart and the actions, right? The actions flow out, clean actions, holy actions flow out of the holy heart. But we should expect to see both, right? So the application is kind of twofold, if I was going to say it. Um, This is Acts 15. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by My mouth, the Gentiles, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So this act of salvation that God is bringing about in the new covenant is a cleansing of the heart by faith. That's the good news of the gospel, that we have cleansing for our hearts. So that's one application is... You need to have a clean heart. How do you get a clean heart? Jesus. (laughs) Right? So that's one application is believe the gospel. That's the only way to have a clean heart. And here's back to Mark 7. Jesus gives us some application. He says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, the whole list, right? So we have, have a clean heart, and if you have a clean heart, then you will avoid these things, right? So there's an application for our hearts and an application for our hands.